Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, some housekeeping today. I have a new podcast to announce. A single episode, which we will be dropping, I believe, Friday of this week, if all goes according to plan. So look for it in your feed on the 23rd of April. The title of this episode is Engineering the Apocalypse, and it was produced by my friend Rob Reed, who is a uh, podcaster and author, also a tech entrepreneur. I met Rob at the TED conference some years ago, and then he started his own podcast, the After On podcast, and he interviewed me, I think for the first episode there, and I thought it was probably the best interview anyone had ever done of me, so we aired that here on Making Sense. I believe we titled it the After On Interview. Anyway, in the intervening years, Rob has gotten very interested in existential risk, and in particular the risk posed by advances in synthetic biology, which could very well lead to an engineered pandemic. But everything he says in this podcast is relevant to a naturally occurring pandemic, like the one we are currently suffering. Anyway, this is a deeply researched and by turns harrowing and hopeful look at advances in synthetic biology. And it's broken into four chapters, which are separated by interstitial conversations that I have with Rob. Anyway, I thought the job he did was fantastic. Pandemic preparedness has to be a huge priority for us going forward. And um, this is our best effort to argue that it really must be. COVID has been a dress rehearsal for something far worse. And as such, it has been pretty much an unmitigated disaster. We may have lost sight of this, given how successful our vaccine production has been and how the rollout has ramped up. But our response to COVID, in particular, our failure to organize a globally coherent response, was just a terrifying failure. Terrifying given how much worse a pandemic can be and how much worse it's likely to be if it's ever consciously engineered. So anyway, this upcoming podcast will be dropped as a single episode that's nearly four hours in length. And again, the title is Engineering the Apocalypse. And needless to say, we'll be releasing that as yet another PSA, which is to say the whole thing will be freely available. But of course, if you find this work valuable, the way to support it is to subscribe at samharris.org. And to coincide with the release of this podcast, the Waking Up Foundation will be giving two significant grants to relevant organizations that are working on the front lines of pandemic preparedness. As many of you know from my conversations with the philosopher Will McCaskill, I've been thinking more about how to effectively do some good in the world, in addition to just talking about what is good to do. So we formed the Waking Up Foundation for that purpose, and at least 10% of the corporate profits of Waking Up go there, as does a minimum of 10% of my own income. And the foundation works as a pass-through to other organizations, so 100% of the funds leave it and go elsewhere. And so these next donations are focused on this problem of pandemic preparedness. And in this vein, we're supporting the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics, 
at Harvard University, which focuses on improving our methods of understanding the data around infectious disease, and it engages policymakers to improve their decision-making, which often leaves a lot to be desired. And the second organization is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, the CEPI, whose mission is to accelerate the development of vaccine technology. They're funding new platforms so that we can develop vaccines even more quickly than we did for COVID and really do it just in time in response to a, a novel pathogen, which is precisely what we're likely to face in the case of a synthetically engineered pandemic. Now, neither of these organizations are set up to take small individual donations. But if you're a philanthropist and you want to come along with us in helping to improve our pandemic preparedness, I would certainly encourage you to support these organizations. Once again, that's the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at Harvard University and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. And I should say that the Waking Up Foundation is getting great advice on this front from Natalie Cargill of Longview Philanthropy. This is an organization that advises individuals and foundations who want to deploy significant funds to solve long-term problems. And I was introduced to Natalie through Will McCaskill, and I've been extremely impressed with the research that they've done at Longview and the clarity of their advice, all of which is given free of charge. Longview is independently funded. So if you're running a foundation or you're a wealthy person who wants free advice about how to give most effectively, I highly recommend that you get in touch with the people at longview.org. Again, this is not a recommendation for small donors. I believe you need to be giving away at least a million dollars a year before Longview can help guide you. But for those of you who are in the philanthropy space, I recommend you get in touch. But if you are an individual donor and you want to ride along with me, we will be detailing all the orgs we support at the Waking Up Foundation once that website is launched. And on that point, I want to say that the Making Sense audience has been fantastically generous in the past. On the occasions where I've discussed specific nonprofits on this podcast, the people who run them always come back astonished at the result. To give you just a couple of snapshots here, GiveWell.org reached out recently to say that just by my mentioning their organization a few times on this podcast, this is the group that does exhaustive research on the effectiveness of charities and recommends what they consider to be the most effective ones in several categories. My discussing their work a few times, once with Will McCaskill, resulted in you guys donating $1.8 million through them directly and pledging another $1.8 million in recurring donations. So that's $3.6 million through the end of this year. And Will McCaskill's organization, Giving What We Can, which was started by Toby Ord, who's also been on the podcast, has told me that in response to my discussing their pledge, this is the pledge to give a minimum of 10% of one's lifetime earnings to the most effective charities, which you can do at any level, whether you're making $30,000 a year or $30 billion. I'm told that my discussing this pledge with Will caused hundreds of you to take this pledge yourselves. 
and after waking up became the first company to take the pledge. Ten more companies soon followed. Now, I don't know how much money to the most effective charities this represents, but it's surely many, many millions of dollars. I believe giving what we can just past the $2 billion mark in lifetime earnings that have been pledged. Anyway, my point in mentioning this isn't to brag about the influence of this podcast, but rather to convey my gratitude and astonishment, frankly. I mean, it's just amazing to see the knock-on effects of discussing these things. Anyway, I will keep you all informed about this, but uh, this is just to let you know that over at Waking Up and here at Making Sense, we um, have transitioned into doing more than just talk about specific problems. We're marshalling our own resources to try to do some good directly ourselves. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is one of the most cited scientists in the world for her research in psychology and neuroscience. She's a professor at Northeastern University with appointments at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Lisa was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience in 2019, and she's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Royal Society of Canada. And she's the author, most recently, of a very enjoyable book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And we cover a few of those lessons in today's podcast. We talk about how the human brain evolved, the myth of the triune brain, which has been all too influential. We discuss how the brain is organized into networks, the predictive nature of perception and action, the construction of emotion, concepts as prescriptions for action, culture as an operating system, and many other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you Lisa Feldman Barrett. I am here with Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. So you've written this wonderful little primer on the brain, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, which um, I think will be the focus of our discussion, although we'll, we'll probably wander to other topics. But um, I just uh, I want our listeners to know that this is a, um, a marvelously accessible book and a short one. It's only 130 pages or so. And, uh, you know, we, we need more of this kind of thing. It's uh, the there's this um, kind of awful property of the brain and um, neuroscience generally, which is uh, when you get into the details, it becomes just a catalog of anatomical names that are were certainly not written by by writers, you know, especially ones who wanted to write books for a general audience, and it becomes this blizzard of mnemonic challenges for a reader, and you, you've managed to avoid all of that and still deliver a very um, interesting discussion about the brain and the mind. So uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. So before we jump in, perhaps you can summarize your background intellectually. What kinds of questions have you focused on as a scientist? Well, I... You know, I started my training as a clinical psychologist and then very quickly went through a series of retrainings in physiology and then in neuroscience. And 
more recently in engineering, learning something about systems theory and um, in evolutionary and developmental aspects of neuroscience. So the questions I really think about now relate to, you know, how, how is the brain, how is your brain in constant conversation with your body and the other brains and bodies, you know, that surround you? How is it conjuring the features of your mind? How does it control your, the internal systems of your body at the same time as it's, you know, controlling your behavior and giving you memories and thoughts and feelings and so on? And that may sound like, you know, too big of a question to answer, but I would say I'm really interested in understanding a systems level kind of approach to to brain function. Mm. And that encompasses a lot of things. So I have a large, a largish lab, and we have a lot of different research projects going on. So it's really hard when someone asks me, so what are you, what is your newest research project? And I'm like, well, we have like probably 40 of them going on. So it's hard to, it's hard to summarize in one sentence. And you're currently a professor as well, right? So do you spend some time teaching or is it all research at the moment? I mean, I, I know we're talking in COVID land or at the tail end, one hopes yeah. of COVID the COVID pandemic, so nothing seems normal, but what is your general life like as a uh, professor? Yeah, so I run a lab, which has 25 full-time people in it. And then usually we have, not during COVID, but usually at other times, we have about 100, 150 undergraduate researchers in the laboratory in any given year. And the lab is spread out across two different places. So I have personnel at, at two different places, graduate students, postdocs, and so on, postdoctoral fellows. I teach one course a year for undergraduates. It's a lab course. Mm. And then occasionally I will also teach, formally teach uh, gr- graduate seminars. But I also run a weekly or now biweekly seminar that I've been running for I guess about eight or nine years that I don't get any credit for. We just do it out of the love of doing it with engineers and computer scientists and other neuroscientists and psychologists. And so I and another and my colleague in engineering, we run this seminar for all of our peeps. So it's about 25 people who attend this seminar. And it's been going on, like I said, for, for quite a number of years. And then I also run other reading groups that people attend on particular topics depending on what we're interested in. So for example, for uh, on predictive processing or on energetics, which is a, the, a word that we use to refer to brain metabolism and the, you know, the way that the brain is regulating the metabolic functions of the body. Mm. So one of the things you do throughout this book, especially at the outset, is debunk a few myths and bad metaphors we've relied on to understand the brain or or seem to understand the brain. And um, this seems like a very useful thing to do. Perhaps we should just start where you start with the larger context of evolution and what we think we understand about the evolution of the human brain. What And, and perhaps this is a good place to part company with Paul McLean. So um, how do you think about the brain in evolutionary terms? I love this question. This is one of my, I think this is one of the most fun questions, really. It occurred to me at some, at one point, like, why do we even have a brain? It's, 
it's a really expensive organ, right? That three pound blob of meat between your ears costs you about 20% of your entire metabolic budget. So it's pretty expensive. And I'll just point out, depending on what you do with it, it can cost you much more than that. <laughs> it certainly can. Yeah, especially on social media. <laughs> it certainly can. That's absolutely right. And so I'm very fortunate in that I've been we meeting really weekly with Barbara Finley, who is an evolutionary and developmental neuroscientist. And she's basically, you know, to use her words, she's like downloading all of her knowledge into my brain, which really means that she repeats herself frequently and has to explain things often more than one time. And this is pretty, pretty, you know, not, not to make a bad pun, but like pretty heady stuff. It's pretty complicated. You know, I had to learn embryology and I, you know, barely understand what I'm reading, but I understand a little bit now at least. But that the really cool thing I think is that if you go back, you know, 550 million years ago to a time in the Earth's history called the Edicarian, animals didn't have brains. And so I was just really interested to try to understand, well, why, you know, why did brains evolve? And Sam, you know, you, you know, you can never really answer the why question very easily in evolution, but you certainly can answer what questions. So like, what is the brain's most important job? What is a brain really good for? And you can look at the evolutionary, the, the evolutionary story that, that molecular geneticists and anatomists and so on, ecologists have, have crafted. And it's a really cool and interesting drama. And it, what it suggests is that your brain's most important job isn't thinking or seeing or even feeling. So these are characteristics. These are features that the brain performs or, or computes, but they're not actually the brain's most important job. Its most important job is regulating the systems of your body your heart, your lungs, your immune system, your, you know, endocrine system and so on. And of course, you know, we don't experience every delight and, or, you know, every drama in our lives this way. We, we don't experience every hug that we get or used to get before COVID or every insult that we bear. We don't, we don't experience things these way, this way, but this is actually what is going on under the hood. And when your brain thinks and decides and sees and hears and feels, it's doing this in the service of the regulation of your body. And that turns out to be a really important insight. Mm. I, I would add one piece here. I, I know you, I don't recall if you put it this way in your book, but it does strike me that just by the, the logic of evolution, the um, motor behavior is in some ways primary here, because if you can't move, if you can't do anything with a brain, if there's no way that it can influence the differential success of an organism in, in the contest for mates or, or survival, then there would have been no evolutionary pressure in this direction. So it, it seems to presuppose an ability to do something with respect to the environment. I don't think there's a bright line between that story and the story of regulating the internal states of the body. I think, I think we'll get to that. But don't you see an ability to actually act in some way as being 
the necessary context for this evolutionary pressure? Absolutely. In fact, really, you know, I guess I'm very persuaded by work in motor neuroscience and certainly in philosophy, the idea that motor motor action is primary and everything all sensory processing is in the service of motor action. I think that's absolutely right. The one thing I would say though is that you know in in vertebrates in all vertebrates certainly and in in I would maybe hazard to say all animals who have limbs that move or parts that move there's usually an internal set of systems that support that movement now invertebrates you know like us that's you know a cardiovascular system and a respiratory system and and so on you know not all animals have the kind of viscera that we have that vertebrates have so invertebrates you know have their own systems but there is no external movement of bodies without internal systems to support that and in motor neuroscience, as much as I respect that work, and I really do, I think they're really ahead of the curve in certain ways, they they tend to ignore the internal systems of animals' bodies. And I really think that that's an important part of the story that is missing. So when I say, you know, that the brain is regulating the body, I really mean everything motor about the body. Mm. That would include what we call visceral motor, which means the beating of your heart and the you know, contraction of your lungs and so on. But it also means the movement of your skeletal motor system, the, the, your muscles, the voluntary movements of your muscles. And in fact, if you look at, for example, primary motor cortex in a monkey brain, a macaque brain, it has visceral motor maps in it. And some of the regions that are considered to be, you know, sort of association regions for the motor system are actually the primary cortical controllers of visceromotor regulation, meaning regulation of the viscera right. of your lungs and your heart and so on. So in your brain, the internal systems of your body, the, 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 sort of the, the neurons that are controlling the internal systems of your body and the neurons that are controlling your skeletal motor system, the, you know, your voluntary muscle movements are really intertwined. That's not well documented in motor neuroscience work, but it's present in the anatomy. You can just see it. It's there. Mm. Yeah, but we'll talk about emotion, but I, I tend to think about emotion now as a kind of covert behavior, right? So that the line between emotion and action that is um, commonsensical, I think, can break down if you follow that framing. But uh, let's, let's not leap to emotion just yet. The evolutionary story we have told ourselves for a long time has been uh, summarized by this concept given to us by uh, Paul McLean of the triune brain, and uh, you know, so people refer to their their lizard brain, or they think of a stepwise evolution from reptiles to mammals generally, and then to primates as having kind of climbed up from the brainstem to the cortex. What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with that picture is that it doesn't really match the best available scientific evidence for how brains evolved. I mean, if you look at a lizard brain and say uh, 
a mammal brain, like a, like say um, a rat or like a rodent brain, say, and you look at a monkey brain and a human brain, you know, they look different to the naked eye. It looks like the rat, it, or I should say, it looks like, it looks like the lizard doesn't really have much of a cerebral cortex. It, it looks like the rat has, you know, maybe a little bit of, of kind of old cortex and um, that, that the monkey and the human have quite a bit and the human having, you know, substantially more than a, the monkey. That's how it looks to the naked eye. But, and this, you know, led Paul McLean and others, you know, guided by, I think, certain cultural beliefs to describe brain evolution in, in much the way that you just described it. Although your description, Sam, is slightly more lyrical mm. than maybe what McLean wrote. But, you know, the idea that a lizard brain is mostly has parts for instincts, you know, like freezing and fighting and fleeing and copulating, which, you know, neuroscientists make a f funny joke, you know, like they refer to it as the four F's. Mm. So that's neuroscience humor for you. <laughs> and then layered on top of that evolved what's called a limbic system, limbic meaning border, bordering this, you know, li these lizard parts for emotion. And then what lay, and then what evolved on top of that is the cerebral cortex or the neocortex, the new part of the cortex, which you only see in what are referred to as higher <laughs> uh, mammals, you know, like us. And the idea is that, you know, your lizard brain contains your instincts, your limbic system contains your emotions. And then these are, these make up your inner beast and they are constantly in battle with the more rational side of yourself, which resides in your cerebral cortex. So your brain is a battleground between your inner beast and your rational self for control of your behavior. And the idea is that, you know, when your cortex wins and you behave rationally, you're a moral person and you're healthy. And if your inner beast wins to control your behavior, then you're either immoral because you didn't try hard enough or you're sick because it didn't work, you know, that, that there's something wrong with your, with your rational cortex. And the problem with this, even though it makes a lot of sense it, it, in terms of our, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about what, what it means to be moral and responsible for behavior. And it's, you know, it's very consistent with Western views of the self. The problem is that it doesn't actually match the evidence that when you peer into neurons and you look at their molecular structure, in particular, you know, the, the genes that guide the formation and function of, of those neurons, you, you see a really, really different story. And the story is that really all mammals who've, whose brains have ever been studied, actually their brains follow the same developmental plan. Their neurons actually, there are no new neurons, really no new neuron types. And remarkably, the stages of development, and I'm talking about, you know, embryological development forward, the stages of development in, in all of these mammal brains that have been studied, different species, proceeds in exactly the same order, pretty much. It, what's, what changes is the duration of each stage. And there's this really interesting observation that 
George Streeter, the, the neurobiologist, made about brains in his book on brain evolution, by the way, excellent book, if anyone wants a primer on you know, brain evolution, it's, it's a really fantastic book. Mm. You know, he says, you know, brains reorganize as they grow larger. And so it can look like there are new structures there just because there are more of certain neuron types. But actually, the, you know, there's nothing new in terms of the neurons. It's just they look like they're reorganized and they look like there are miraculously new parts there, but there are really no new parts. It's just that certain types of neurons have certain stages in development have, have gone on for longer. And so there are certain types of neurons, there's just more of them. And if you go back even further and you look at other animals, you know, other vertebrates, you see that many of them have also really striking similarities to the to, to mammalian brains. So for example, birds don't have a cerebral cortex, but they certainly have neurons that are the same as the neurons that make up our cerebral cortex and that seem to perform some very similar functions to what our cerebral cortex, the various functions our cortex performs. So basically there is no, you know, lizard brain. You don't have a, an ancient beast lurking inside your brain. And the only animal who has a lizard brain is a lizard. Are there any exceptions to this? I, I had thought that um, von Economo neurons were an exception, that they were just, they were present in great apes and uh, I think cetaceans and elephants and a few other you know, charismatic vertebrates, but were not found in, in reptiles or birds. Or... So von Economo neurons are very contentious. I mean, there, there are some anatomists who will tell you that Von Economo neurons are not a special class of neurons. They're just really big honking pyramidal cells. Mm. So, you know, you find them in large brained animals because, you know, as brains get bigger, sometimes the neurons also get bigger. And, you know, one thing that's happened, for example, in large brained animals, what often happens is that. There are certain parts of the cortex in particular that as they grow, what happens, you know, evolutionarily, but also in development, what happens is not that they develop more neurons, but they develop fewer neurons that get much bigger and they have much more connectivity. Mm. And the reason for that is, um, well, I don't know the reason for it, but the, the, the functional consequence of that is that, which is something I explain in essay seven which is that it means that the animal's brain can summarize information much more efficiently and maybe even do some abstraction, meaning can find similarities in things that look and feel and smell and taste different, find functional similarities. So this is abstraction. This is what we call abstraction, right? And that's really, you know, maybe what these very large pyramidal neurons are for, but there are some anatomists and, and some neuroscientists who look at von Economo neurons and say, well, these are just ordinary big, you know, neurons. Mm. They're not, there's nothing really special about them. And you find them in animals who have large brains relative to their body size. Right. Right. So what is the appropriate picture of the structure of uh, what we have in there if it's not this cartoon? of descent from reptiles 
what picture of complexity and and you know now leading the witness network complexity uh, <laughs> should we uh, should we have in our heads? Yeah, I think I'm going to ask your question, but I just want to take one step back for a minute mm -hmm. and say that you know we live in a world where we see objects and we we see boundaries between objects and you know like here's a book here's a purse here's a computer here's a glass whatever and so we have a tendency to think about things in terms of objects instead of in terms of relationships between features mm. and so for a really long time people have thought about the brain as having these distinct parts you know like there's this group of neurons called the amygdala which performs emotion and there's this other group you know called the basal ganglia which performs you know movement and then there's this other part called the cerebral cortex and the prefrontal part of that really performs decision making or rationality or what have you and that's just i mean there are people who still hold to that view and and certainly people have built their whole careers on such notions and and been very successful but i think there's also a growing understanding that that's really not how the brain works it's not how the brain is structured there are no objects you know there are no kind of mental organs in your brain that's just not really the way that's just not really the best way to understand the anatomy or the function and that instead we should be understanding neurons in terms of their relationships to one another and the features that they compute and so they're really that this can take many forms in published papers on neuroscience, but one that's very popular at the moment is to think about the brain, think about you know neurons as in a large, dynamically fluctuating network. And so if you think about, you know, instead of thinking about neural signals as being passed from one you know region to the other, like a baton in a race, you can think about neural activity and the patterns that are created more like weather patterns or something where you know many 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 neurons are participating in computing an event that has a set of features and some of those features are you know very close to the data that you get from your sensory surfaces like your retina and your cochlea and all the sensory all the sensors in, inside your body. So, you know, like a line, for example, or color, like the color red, your experience of the color red is a feature that your brain computes. It doesn't detect, as you know, and it's computing it using information from not one color detector, you know, like uh, as so-called cones. And, you, you know, you have three, you have cones in these cells in your retina that register three different ranges of wavelengths of light and you need all three to see red or green or any color and so your brain computes these features and it, it also computes features like like seeing a face it computes features like uh threat it computes features like novelty it computes features all kinds of features and in a given event your brain is sort of computing sequences of events and in computing an event what it's doing is computing features in the service of regulating the body, regulating action and the all the visceral, you know, changes that will support that action. And so the way to think about it is your brain is a single structure with, you know, 128 billion neurons, give or take, and it can take on trillions of patterns. And these patterns 
are, you know, helped along by the chemical bath that surrounds these neurons. So your neurons are bathed in a chemical system and, and it's just, your brain is basically dynamically along a trajectory from one pattern to another pattern, to another pattern, to another pattern, and trying to understand what launches those patterns, what maintains those patterns, what features your brain is, is computing. That's really the goal of understanding brain function. Yeah, I would also just point out that the methods we use to understand brain function, like increasingly functional neuroimaging, can also give a, a false picture of the modularity of the brain and therefore the mind. Because, you know, we, just by the nature of the tool that we look at the data in terms of these pretty pictures of certain regions of the brain, so-called lighting up in response to stimuli or tasks. And it can give a sense, you know, not to actual neuroscientists generally, but perhaps in a more subtle way can even corrupt their thinking. But it certainly can give a sense to the general public that this is a question of other areas of the brain actually not doing anything when they're not part of the illuminated map of you know what is most active during a certain function so it can just give this this false picture of separate organs in the brain that are albeit connected are really independently responsible for an emotion like disgust say or a, a certain kind of perceptual task and you just can't visualize the network behavior and the fluctuating network behavior and the and the weighting between nodes in the network as easily as you can just aggregate the data by subtracting you know two states of the brain and showing one to one where these regions were more active than in the other yes and no i think i i mostly agree with you but i would i would probably just push back maybe a little bit on a couple of points one i would say it's not the fault of of brain imaging techniques it's really the fault of the analysis techniques that we use and the sample sizes we have. Mm -hmm. So I would say that with fMRI, you know, fMRI has its problems for sure. It's, it has limitations in terms of its temporal, you know, resolution and also even some spatial resolution issues. But really, it, it, has, it has much more to do with the kinds of designs that it, uh, scientists use and the kinds of analytic techniques that they use. And I'll give you a, a really good example. There's a, what I think of as a really brilliant paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy in 2012. The first author is Gonzalez Castillo. And it's this really nice paper where they, you know, compare the sort of standard, you know, experimental design really for a very, very simple task, which is, um, I believe it was a visual, visual perception task, maybe visual orientation, I think it was, um, but very, very straightforward task, so visual attention task. And when you run, you know, some subjects and you, you have maybe, you know, 40, 50 to 100 trials, where a trial is, you know, you show something unexpected to the subject and then they you know, they have to make a judgment of whether, you know, lines are pointing in the left direction or the right direction or what have you. What you see in the, the way the analysis is done, the way that choices, analytic choices are made to separate signal from noise and so on, you see 
a couple of islands of, of, of increase in activity that are depicted on a brain, you know, image as like spots that light up, like the light bright, you know, sort of brain. And it's important to really understand here that these images that we see in magazines and in journal articles and so on are curated by scientists. They don't just pop out of the data mm. on their own. They're made contingent that these images are contingent on a bunch of analytic decisions that are made. Now, if you expect that there are islands of activity because, you know, different parts of your brain are responsible for different specific psychological functions, and that's what you expect and you've designed your study that way, and you've only, you know, tested your subjects on 50 to 100 trials and you threshold, uh, that is, you make decisions about signal versus noise in particular ways, what you get are a couple of islands of activity. However, what this paper showed is that if you run 400 trials for each subject, so you bring them back for multiple scanning sessions, and you analyze the data in a slightly different way by, instead of assuming that every part of the brain has, that the, that the, the shape of the the response is the same. And instead of assuming that, you model, you know, this the variability in how the different parts are responding. That what you see is that 85% of the brain shows an increase in activity. That means 85% of the brain is showing a change to make a very, very simple decision mm. that is considered. Yeah. So the point is that if your if your studies are designed in a way that is underpowered, you're not going to realize that you're making what we would call a type two error, which is that you're missing a lot of important activity that's there because, you know, you're expecting to see blobs and what you get are blobs. And so, you know, if what you expect is islands of activity, you'll perform your studies, you know, with something I used to call blobology, which is that, you know, you'll identify these blobs of activity. I think people have to realize that these, these images are really curated by humans who have a set of assumptions. I'll just give you one other really quick example. And that is, you know, when people started looking at networks in the brain, so this is um, regions that are, have correlated, that, where the brain response is correlated. So, you know, you, you take a brain and you divide it up into lots of little cubes called voxels. And so you look for sets of voxels that have a similar change in blood flow during uh, an experiment. And you call that a network. And it turns out, you know, this actually does reveal something about the underlying structure of the brain. But when you look at the way that scientists mostly study these networks, they're, they look like Lego blocks, like they're completely unrelated to each other and like, like you know, pieces of a puzzle mm. and you put them all together and you get a brain. But, you know, that's a decision. Those are computational decisions that are made on based on analytic, you know, choices that are guided by certain assumptions. If you do the analysis slightly differently, which is what we did. So we took, you know, almost a thousand subjects and we, instead of asking, you know, using kind of standard way of looking for signal and noise, we said, okay, anything which replicates from one subject to another is signal by definition, and anything which doesn't is noise. And so let's just try to parse the, you know, networks in the brain by doing this. And what we found was, 
you know, we found the, the sort of networks that people often talk about, but they're really, they overlap. <laughs> they're yeah. not, uh, they're not disconnected. They're actually overlap and they overlap in, in particular regions of the brain, which are known to be, they're called hubs or rich club hubs, meaning densely connected uh, regions that are responsible for really coordinating activity across the whole brain. They're called, you know, these rich club hubs are called the backbone of neural communication in the brain. There's a really nice paper by Olaf Sporns and, and Vandenhuvel Sporns. I think mm. it's Vandenhuvel and Sporns in 2013 in uh, the Journal of uh, Neuroscience. And so my point is that these images that you see, they're beautiful and awe-inspiring, but they're curated by humans who have a set of assumptions. Yeah, and it's also easy to see the temptation to think in those terms, because I mean, we have you know, something like 170 years of neurology attesting to the fact that highly focal lesions, you know, brain damage, can lead to very specific deficits. Again, this can be understood in network terms, but it is, in fact, descriptively true that you can have a small region of the brain damaged, and that can dissect out a, a very specific mental capacity, you know, language use or an ability to recognize faces or, or even to recognize specific classes of objects like, uh, you know, tools versus animals. And that's, that does give you this sort of jigsaw puzzle-like, Lego-like intuition about the modularity of the mind. Yeah, you're right. But even there, it's more complicated than it first appears, right? Because when you damage a part, when you damage tissue, you don't really know whether what you've damaged, the critical part, you know, to the function that you've lost, are the neurons that are damaged or what are called fibers of passage, yeah. which means, you know, axons that run through that area, which are really important. And I just learned about this really, this phenomenon that I, I just, this is the kind of stuff I just love, honestly, where, you know, you can lose, if you damage one part of your primary visual cortex, so this is in animals, they'll ablate a, a part of the primary visual cortex and um, the animal will lose the ability to see. And so obviously you think, oh, well, okay, this, this region must be super important to seeing. And it is important, except that you can recover some of that function by a second lesion in the superior colliculus in the midbrain. Mm. So there's information that could make it from your retina to your primary visual cortex, but it's being suppressed by the colliculus reg in a regular fat, in a regular neurotypical brain. Though you can recover function by le a second lesion. And so it's just things like that, right? That make you, or here's another example, another, you know, example, which I find just absolutely fascinating. I find it slightly horrifying as a person, but because of what happens to the animals, but as a scientist, it's really fascinating. So they took these rats and trained them to run on a wheel and, you know, recorded directly from neurons in the visual cortex, primary visual cortex, and then they ablate the damage, the retinas, destroy the retinas of these animals so they can't see. And V1 neurons, primary visual cortex neurons, 
quieten down. And then over 24 hours, they ramp up again and start firing at normal rates. So what's causing these neurons to fire? You know, you put the rat back on the wheel and its neurons, the pattern of firing looks really similar to what it looked like when the animal was sighted. So what is it exactly that's driving the activity in these neurons? And the answer probably is regions of the anterior cingulate cortex, which have direct connections to V1. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is interesting is that this, these, this region of the brain is a primary regulator of the systems of your body. Both, it is a primary motor area for the viscera of your body, and it's an association region for your skeletal motor system. And what these, what this activity is essentially, what you can think about it is, are, are a set of visual predictions uh, that are coming from past experience from that, you know, have, have that the motor, that these motor regions are, are able to, to reinstate. Mm. And so it's just, it's just trickier, Sam, than, you know, I mean, it, 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 if you start to just poke at it a little bit, modularity starts to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we found the seminar you can teach at Esalen one day, ablating brainstem nuclei so as to recover a proper vision of the world. <laughs> yeah, I really wouldn't recommend that people try that at home. It's not, not advised. So let's talk about prediction and just this, this uncanny circumstance we're all in, which very few people realize, and, and those of us who realize it, I think, rarely think about, which is I mean, we, we have this venerable philosophical thought experiment of the, the brain in the vat, and you know, this is a kind of um, device to think about many things in, in, in the philosophy of mind. But rarely is it pointed out that we, we really are brains in vats already. The vat is our skull, and we do not have direct contact with the physical environment, much less reality itself, in any straightforward way. It's not like our senses are windows through which we're peering or hearing or sensing directly. There's a, a very active and even anticipatory, you know, to use your term, predictive activity that is producing a, a visionary experience, a dreamlike experience of the world. I, I mean, it's exactly like a dream, except for the ways in which, in the waking state, our envisioning of the world is constrained by sensory input in, in, you know, to a different degree. So how do you think about the situation we're in? You know, just epistemologically, existentially, we are, uh, and this is a phrase you use at some point in the book, we, we are experiencing a kind of controlled hallucination. It's not to say that nothing is veridical or nothing is, that no statement about the world as it is, is better than any other, you know, or more convergent with facts that we could intersubjectively find credible. But you know, it, it's much more like the matrix than we give it credit for most of the time. And so that's, uh, you know, perhaps that can get you going in the direction of how you think about the mind as a, and the brain as a predictive computational system and not one that's merely passively encountering the, 
the world as it is. Well, I think you just did a beautiful job describing it in very poetic terms, actually. Calling it a dreamlike, calling the brain's, you know, or describing the brain's function as conjuring dream, a dreamlike state is actually something that I just came across in this really wonderful book by Carlo Rivelli. It's, an, it's his new book called Helgoland. Hmm. I don't think it's available yet in the US. I had to order it from the UK. And I, and, you know, he's really, he, what he's doing, he's explaining his understanding of quantum mechanics for a civilian like me. You know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a physicist. And, but, you know, and with, with very, very little math. And, and then, you know, as often seems to happen, you know, everyone wants to take a shot at explaining what the brain does and, you know, what consciousness is. It doesn't matter if you trained as mm-hmm. a you know, a physicist or what have you, everyone takes their shot. And but his shot, you know, he's describing, trying to describe prediction based on, you know, I'm imagining what he what he read uh, from the literature in visual neuroscience, where a lot of this work has taken place. I think, though, there's much, there's a lot more work, which is very consistent with, you know, your description. There's a really, really nice paper that was written actually, which was my review. I, was, I reviewed this paper, actually, for Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which is a, a really great journal. And this is what alerted me to this growing literature. This was back like in 2010, I think, maybe, or 2011, this growing literature on what's called predictive coding or predictive processing. It's a paper by Andy Clark. Mm-hmm. Philosopher, right? Philosopher, yeah. but also, you know, just writes beautifully about very intuitively and beautifully about the brain as a predictive organ and but you know what for me i'm i you know i don't know about you but i am like inherently skeptical person i i really (laughs) i don't even believe my own data necessarily it takes me a really long time before i i don't jump on bandwagons typically and i also really don't I mean, scientists, I think in general, wouldn't you agree? We don't really like to use the F word, you know, fact. That's a really scary word. So we try to avoid it. And, but, you know, if you look in the literature, if you look at anatomy and you look at any number of literatures in neuroscience and you look at signal processing literatures in engineering and so on, what you see is that exactly the same discovery is being made over and over and over again by literatures that don't talk to each other. And I found this really compelling. And that is this idea that your brain is trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull. And it is constantly receiving sense data from the world you know, through its sensory surfaces, your retina, your cochlea, whatever, and also in, inside your body. So it's, it's it, the world to your brain is everything outside of the skull. And it's receiving these, this sense data that it has to make sense of. And this is an inverse problem because it, these sense data are the effects that they're the outcomes of some set of changes, but your brain doesn't have access to those changes it only has access to the outcomes the the consequences of those changes so how does it you know if your brain 
If your brain is exposed to a loud bang, how does your brain know what that loud bang is? How does your brain know what to do about it? Um, you know, it, it, your, you would do something different if it was a, a slamming door or a dropped box or a gunshot. And similarly, you know, when you feel a tug in your chest, how does your brain know? How does your brain know when it detects a tug, right? Whether when it, it's sensing a tug, whether that's, you know, anxiety or, you know, that there's some uncertainty or that you just ate a big meal and uh, you're having a little trouble digesting it or the beginnings of a heart attack. It has to guess. And what does it use to guess? It uses the only other source of information that it has, which is past experience that it can re-implement, reinstate in its own wiring. So colloquially, we would call that memory. So when a brain remembers, when your brain remembers, when my brain remembers, my brains don't store memories and then call them up like files in a file drawer. Basically, remembering is reassembling, reassembling the past in the present for the purposes of, of making sense of sense data. And for a number of reasons, some of which are metabolic, your brain is sort of doing this predictively. So it's not waiting to receive the input and then trying to make sense of it. And there are lots of ways to demonstrate this to people. Sometimes when I'm giving talks, you know, I'll use a baseball example and I'll kind of walk people through the timing of the baseball example. You know, baseball couldn't exist as a sport. No actual ball related sport could exist if we had reactive brains. There just isn't physically enough time. For, you know, to, for a batter to wait to see a ball before he swings mm. and actually hit the ball. And there are lots of, really, lots of really cool, interesting examples from everyday life. But the point is that metabolically speaking, it's much cheaper for the brain to use past experience to guess what's going to happen next, where the guess is not some abstraction. It's actually your brain changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare you to see and hear and smell and feel and do something in the next moment. And then it checks those predictions against the incoming sense data from the body and from the world. Scientists call this, you know, running a model of the world. But really what your brain is doing is it's running a model of your body. And it, it, the model of your body in the world, but it only knows the world by virtue of the sense data that it gets from the sensory surfaces of your body. So essentially, every feature that your brain computes, it's computing in relation to your body in a particular moment in time, in a particular context or location, relative to or related to the particular shape of your ear and the particular distance of your two eyes from one another and the particular state of your mitochondria and so on and so forth. It's all relative. That doesn't mean some kind of postmodernist morass, but what it does mean is that we really have to realize that Everything that we experience, we experience from a particular perspective. And there is nothing really called objectivity. The best we can hope for, according to the historian of science, Naomi Oreskes, is um, 
that a bunch of people with their own subjectivity, you know, with different histories and different backgrounds and different experiences in the world, that they can come to consensus over a scientific set of observations. And that's about as close to objective fact as we can get. And it's a pretty, it's pretty darn good. It's worked out pretty, pretty well for us, you know, but the idea that there are universal facts that can be objectively adjudicated by being rational or something is just, um, it's a fiction that interestingly that brains tell themselves, even though, you know, brains are completely incapable of doing such things. Well, to say that there's no true objectivity is not the same thing as saying that it's not possible to be wrong, right? And we know oh, right. certain things and it's, are yeah. wrong. Oh, for yeah. sure. And it's also not saying that anything is possible, right? right? So, I mean, sometimes when I say, well, there's more than one, <laughs> you know, there's more than one, you know, when I, where I talk about, you know, variability is the norm, right? That, that in, in many places in biology and in psychology, there's much more variation than we often acknowledge or would like. But that doesn't mean that anything is possible. You know, it means that there's just more than one possibility. And similarly, I would say, look, you know, we can all agree, right, that we're going to have ground glass for dinner, but that doesn't necessarily <laughs> translate into the objective reality that we can actually eat glass, right? It doesn't really matter what we believe. We could all agree that COVID is not infectious and that we don't have to wear masks. But, you know, the virus doesn't care about that. I mean, viruses don't care about anything, but really all a virus needs is a wet set of nice wet set of lungs. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the, you know, what that person's brain believes, but there are many, many, but, the, but I think, you know, there, there are many, many cases where what we believe really matters to what we experience. But even if you want to take belief out of the equation, you know, what you experience, what your reality is, how you experience the world is very much relational. It's in relation to the body that you have. And you don't experience yourself that way. I certainly, I mean, I can't tell you what you experience. I don't experience myself that way. And if I wasn't a scientist and somebody just told me that, I'm not sure that I would believe it actually. But it is. That is the best available evidence that your, your brain is constantly cultivating your past for the purposes of predicting your future, which will become your present. Yeah, let's see if we can make this concrete for people, because this, this is really ground upon which the scientific framing of what's going on can unlock a kind of psychological freedom to just change one's sense of what one is as a as a subject in the world and it uh, and I think it can relieve certain kinds of suffering in the simplest case just to take this predictive piece which can sound spooky you take something like a a voluntary motor action like so I, I can decide to reach and pick up a cup on my desk and this is this does relate to this controversy that that I keep resurrecting for myself over the reality or, or lack thereof of free will. Um, I don't know if you know uh, how far down that rabbit hole I've gone, but oh yes, I've, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed um, I guess fall, following you down that rabbit hole. So, yeah. So, so we we can talk about that if it interests you. But um, people have a sense that they are subjects that have this capacity 
to freely initiate behavior, and that's different. You know, I would certainly agree that voluntary behavior is different from involuntary behavior, but I just don't think we need fr- the concept of free will to differentiate the two. So one way they're different is when I'm doing something, you know, of my own volition, uh, re- you know, reaching and picking up a cup that feels a certain way, and it feels a certain way because there, there are certain implicit processes that we we know must be going on neurophysiologically there that do follow this kind of predictive mapping of things. So when I'm reaching, and I'm not consciously aware of it, but I, but I can be made consciously aware of it, certainly when anything goes wrong. So I'm not aware that I'm a prediction machine when I'm reaching to grasp this cup. But if I reached and my fingers passed through it, right, if it was a hologram of a cup and not a real one, or if it felt, you know, squishy, if it was made of, you know, rubber and I wasn't expecting that, all of those occasions of surprise are built on some set of expectations that I wasn't aware of having until I became disillusioned. So I was not aware of expecting solidity, though of course I was. I mean, everything about the grasping behavior of my hand was anticipatory in a certain way. And you can make those, that predictive program consciously felt, certainly in the moments in which it's violated, but it's just simply neurologically the case that we are comparing in order, the only way to detect anomalies in the environment is to have this background modeling going on of what's likely to happen in each moment based on what I'm what I'm doing now and what I'm doing next. And 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 this question of what to do next really does cover so much of what we're about as minds. We're constantly deciding what to do next on some level. Oh absolutely. And there's so much to say about there's there's so much to unpack that's interesting about what you just said. I mean, first of all, I would say it seems to me that, you know, because for whatever reason, we could talk about why, you know, people tend to think of causation in really simple kind of ballistic terms, you know, simple mechanistic terms, when in fact, that's not really how, how anything is caused in your body or really in the world where there's always a, it's always complexity with a lot of, you know, a lot of interacting weak causes that produce an outcome. but. That's not usually how we think about it, right? So to us, it seems like, you know, we make a decision and then, or maybe, uh, let me say it differently. We do some evaluation and then, we, you know, so, so there's some new piece of sensory information there or maybe the absence of something that we expected. And then we evaluate that and then we make a decision and then we act. That's actually not what's really happening in your brain at all. The ordering is off and the, the, there are extra steps there that, you know, don't really exist. So really what's happening is that based on, or at least to the best of our ability, the best of our knowledge, what's happening is that based on whatever your brain is modeling at the moment, it's, it's projecting itself into the future to guess, first of all, what to do next. That is the decision-making. Like there's no set of decision-making and then you act. The decision-making is the preparation for this action versus that action. That is the decision that's being made. And then as a consequence mm. of that, your brain is predicting what it will see and hear and feel and smell and taste as a consequence of those movements. So 
remember when I'm talking about movements here, I'm not just talking about skeletal movements, skeletal motor movements. I'm talking about also visceral motor movements. That is whether your heart speeds up or slows down, whether cortisol is released or, you know, whether, you know, uh, your lungs, you know, expand a little more or a little faster, you know, whether cytokines are released and so on and so forth. So when we talk, when I talk about motor, I'm really talking about the whole shebang. And so I think, first of all, you know, to understand that, that decision-making is always about action first. And it's not like, like I said before, the decision isn't, it's not like you decide something and then you act. The decision that your brain is making is the decision to do this or that based on probabilities and so on. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing which really resonates to me about what you said is that, you know, we are, we're not just unaware of a lot of the goings on of what's in going on in our own brains, right? The brain doesn't make itself aware of a lot of what it does. It also, we're also unaware of what's going on inside our own bodies for the most part. Thank God. Cause you know, there's like a whole drama going on inside you right now. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a horror show I mean, in there. I, all I can say is if anybody really is <laughs> currently aware of all of the drama going on inside your own body, I, you have my deep, deep sympathy because we're not really wired to be intimately aware of all the details just in the way that we're, you know, we see in high dimensional detail, but what's going on inside our own bodies, if, you know, that, that would be what uh, philosophers call, you know, tragic embodiment, <laughs> which is, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot going on. And, you know, you can discover this when, just as you say, when, when something doesn't go quite right, doesn't, so there are all sorts of expectations that your brain has for what it will sense. And what's interesting too, is that your brain is, in fact, all brains, and in fact, even animals without brains per se, have to be able to, in order to move in the world and stay alive, they really have to be able to make distinctions between the sense data that arise from their own movements, which is largely not completely hidden from the brain doesn't completely cancel that out, but it, it certainly strongly takes account of it. And the sense data that arises through some means other than your own movement. That's the really surprising stuff. If you are surprised by sense data, if you experience surprise due to sense data from your own movements, something is seriously wrong. And let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I had a viral infection in my uh, left ear and it destroyed my sense of balance mm. and I completely lost the ability to walk. So, mm. for example, when I would turn my head, you know, when you turn your head, the world stays, st the objects stay stable. <laughs> but when that's only because there's a lot going on under the hood, right? To, to cancel out sense data that would arise from you moving your head because the world would, you know, your visual experience would be like a swoosh of visual, you know, like a, like an abstract painting kind of, and that's exactly what happened. And then yeah. it makes you incredibly nauseated. And anyways, long story short, I had to learn to walk again. I like to tell people, you know, I can also now wear high heels again and so that I'm completely recovered. Mm. Although why anybody would want to wear high heels, right. I just honestly don't know. But 
you know, occasionally I might tip over, like if the ground is a little uneven for no particular reason, but everyone in my family, my friends just understand this to be a really beautiful, quirky thing about me. But the really cool thing, which I can say in retrospect is cool, at the time it was just hard, was that little things that I would do that normally I would be unaware of any sensory consequence of, I was very aware because my brain really had to use the prediction error, right? So its model no longer worked. And so all the prediction error I was aware of, I could experience directly. And as the brain was, my brain was using it to, to recalibrate its model uh, to the body that I now have, right? The one without the inner ear on the left, uh, the way out the balance uh, information that I used to get. And so something simple, like if you and I were having coffee together, Sam, I might, you know, like, let's imagine, let's pretend we can simulate that it's not COVID and that we're not 3000 miles apart. Um, we were having coffee with each other. So I might look at you while you're talking and then I might look down and maybe, you know, have a drink of my coffee. And then I'd look up at you and maybe I might turn my head and look over at the counter. Or I might, you know, as I'm talking, I might shift my gaze to the right and then back to the left to signal to you, okay, I'm finishing up. It's time for you to talk. All of these things, every subtle movement of my head, I felt. Mm. I felt it I felt it in a sensory motor way and I felt it in a visual way, experienced it in a visual way. And it was disorienting and unpleasant for a long time until my brain, you know, recalibrated basically. And it's moments like these that really unmask just how much really small things that you don't, not only do you not think about, but you don't actually experience in any way are just happening all predictively. And it's only when the predictions fail that you you know, can detect that they're there. Hmm. Yeah, well, let me first uh, commiserate with you. I have had my own adventures with uh, the inner ear and the vestibular system. And, and one component of my experience here is tinnitus, which... Um, oh, I'm so sorry. My husband experiences this too. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, it just, it switched on. I, I remember exactly when it switched on in 2007 and it never switched off. And, um, you know, sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse, but it's it's always present. And, you know, I, I did have a kind of Meniere's-like experience of, of imbalance of a sort and, and, you know, vertigo and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, and that, that occasionally happens again. So I know, I know a lot about what you're talking about there. To take tinnitus as a, a starting point here, it, this connects back to what I said earlier about the capacity to, our capacity to once we acknowledge the constructive nature of our mental reality and in some ways reality itself, there are degrees of freedom open to us to just decide what sort of emphasis conceptually is useful. So, I mean, for instance, with, with my tinnitus, I've got a, you know, a high-pitched squeal that's you know, all too salient even now you know, throughout this conversation and, and really throughout you know, most of my life. And it really does matter what I, th how I frame this for myself. So for instance, if, if this were, if this sound were coming from some machine my neighbor had set up in his backyard, 
100% of my concern in life would be to figure out how to get him to stop doing that, right? I mean, that would be like, neighbors have certainly murdered one another over less than what I would be experiencing if this were to happen from that sort of cause. But obviously, there is no neighbor with a machine. It's just, this is happening inside my head somewhere. So it, it just, it occasions a completely different response. Now, that's, a, that's some indication of its unpleasantness, but there are just other framings of it. I mean, on some level, it is also a kind of mindfulness alarm for me now, because when I notice my, when I notice it beginning to drive my, and this is, I guess this is where we can start talking about the, the nature of emotion. When I notice it beginning to drive my emotional state, that is a place where I can decide to reframe things and get off the ride, right? I, mean, I can just notice that this is a, you know, there's, there's nothing, while it's, you know, it has an unpleasant valence to it, there's a kind of usefulness to it here. I, I, I can notice that this is provoking kind of a, an, an emotional reaction, and the mere noticing of that can cause the reaction to dissipate. Right, and you know, if if I were if I wanted to take a, I could take a Buddhist framing of this and say, well, this is just the kind of the resounding evidence of consciousness itself. This is just the the Dharmakaya of consciousness announcing itself in this moment, and that's also just not contemplatively or you know meditatively. That's not wrong either. I mean, I, I can also just connect with that truth, which is just this is just yet another thing announcing the wide open fact of consciousness in this moment. And if I can be equanimous with it in this moment, which I can, well, then I can be that way in the next and the next and the next. And I can more and more demand that that be my default state. And I can you know, be more and more sensitive to every departure from that default state. So there's a constructive nature to what anything means to us emotionally and, and therefore what becomes behaviorally and a kind of attitudinally uh, relevant or possible to do next. And uh, so I just, yeah, I guess I just use that as a bridge to discuss how you view emotion and, and just what it means for us to become angry, sad, fearful, disgusted. In what sense is all of that just happening to us? And in what sense is that a kind of behavior that admits of degrees of freedom? Yeah. So first, let me say, you know, you have my deep, deep empathy for experiencing tinnitus. You know, my husband, my husband also experiences this and mm. has for some years. And the, the double tragedy of it is that he, you know, he's a musician. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not his primary, you know, job at the moment. But I think he, he has a, an experience that's very similar to yours or a way of coping that's very similar to yours. And actually that I talk about this in great detail, not only tinnitus, but other things as well, like depression and pain and um, other kinds of, you know, features that our, our brains construct in my other book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. It's a pretty standard popular science book, so don't be looking for brevity there. Mm. But it does actually go into great detail about prediction and what you call framing, which I would call conceptualization. Um, because it's very related to prediction and freedom and what freedom means exactly. And 
I guess I would say, I would start off by saying yesterday I, I had a conversation at an event with um, Tim Snyder, the brilliant historian yeah. at yeah. Yale who He's wrote, great. yeah, uh, yeah, on tyranny. And, you know, he was talking about his new book. So, so the goal of this conversation was to, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm just sort of setting the stage here. The goal of this conversation was to link seven and a half lessons about the brain to Tim's insights on tyranny and authoritarian thinking and, and so on in, that he wrote about in his book on tyranny, but also his other books about the Holocaust. And he mentioned that he's writing this new book on freedom. And he defines freedom in this really, I think, profound way. And that is not as the absence of some government telling you what to do, but as the ability to conjure possible futures. It's the ability to imagine things being different than they are in the, in the moment. Mm. And I think this is really profound because it really directly speaks to what your brain is doing and how your brain can teach itself to do something different. So, so let's go back to the brain in the box for a second. And uh, I'm going to answer your question about emotion, but this is the setup, really. So your brain is receiving sense data, and it has to make sense of this using, using memory. So what does it do? Well, it doesn't ask itself, figuratively speaking, your brain doesn't ask itself, what is this? What is this, you know, loud sound? It asks the question, figuratively speaking, what is this like? What is this like relative to my past experiences? Like the last time I was in a situation like this, with this particular pattern of sense data and, you know, and whatever just happened, happened, you know, like I'm, I'm on this particular temporal trajectory. The last time this happened, what did I do next? What did I see next, hear next, feel next, right? So it's asking a question about similarity. And then based on past experiences, it, it conjures a, a, a set of predictions, really like a, like a sample in a sense of, or a population of predictions. And to some extent, the incoming sense data helps to select those predictions, the right, the right set, the, the one that works the best. But let's just think about the concept of similarity for a second. What does it mean to say that it's preparing partial patterns that are similar in some way, probably functionally similar to each other? Well, in psychology, a bunch of things which are similar to each other is called a category. And the mental representation of a category is called a concept. So when your brain is constantly predicting, you could say that what it's doing is category construction, or you could say it's doing concept construction. You could also talk about this as conceptualization or interpretation or attribution. I mean, mm. we have all of these, this is how you know something is important in psychology is that you know, it, it ends up having 500 different mm. names. But really what your brain is doing is sort of anticipating, or let me say it differently, it's, it's preparing a concept to categorize sense data which it hasn't received yet, <laughs> that it's about to receive, and that will be understood as the cause of those sense data. So it's not the case that your brain receives information, then makes sense of it, and then you act. It's that your brain, based on whatever, whatever the state of the model is right now in your brain, 
it's preparing how to act and what your sensations will be by creating a concept or you know you could say a category out of your past experience and you can train yourself to predict differently to create different categories or different concepts this is something that you can train yourself to do and you can do it by so normally predictions are are occurring very very automatically without any sense of effort or agency on your part but there are times when we when we try to change right the categorization or the meaning that we're making of something in the moment and it's really often hard to do in the moment but you can train yourself by practicing to learn how to do it really automatically so you know when someone when i feel insulted by something that someone says or somebody hurts somebody says something and i my i feel my feelings are, are hurt or whatever you know i can uh recategorize i can reconceptualize the event and say well uh their opinion of me is just a bunch of neural act it's just a bunch of electrical activity in their head that's pretty much the same as saying the reframing of you know the tinnitus the sounds this is what my husband dan does the, the sounds that he's hearing are just some you know it's it's like a phantom limb problem mm. but in his in his cochlea which it actually is that right. really is probably what tinnitus is and so it's just some random neural firings and you know at first this is really hard to do i mean it's hard to it's hard to make yourself believe it, it you know in it but and it's effortful but the thing is that like most skills if you practice them frequently they become automatic like driving and so there really is a certain amount of freedom that you can buy yourself that you can if you invest the energy in practicing these new ways of categorizing you can buy for yourself a certain amount of freedom of course you know with freedom also comes some responsibility right you know that so i guess what i want to say about this is that there are whole treatment programs based on this idea that um you know people who suffer from chronic pain can reduce their dependence on opioids by learning to construct discomfort instead of distress right and because discomfort really isn't about you it's about just something physical in your body which is unpleasant but it's not you don't suffer in the same way as you do with distress when my daughter was really suffering from depression i i noticed a really interesting thing and that was that when she would get the flu her mood would improve hmm. it, was, it was almost like because the symptoms were the same she was fatigued she you know felt miserable she you know she but her sort of her outlook on life was was more optimistic and i i think it's because you know there was a different categorization going on yeah. the 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 sensations were understood to be caused by you know a virus rather than something intrinsically wrong with her and this was actually one of the motivations for me writing the book how emotions are made really as a almost like a scientific love letter to my daughter um so that she would understand something about what was happening in her own brain that was you know 
that would be like a passport in a sense, or maybe like a, you know, like a menu of options that she could try to free herself from the suffering that she was enduring in, in adolescence. And in fact, one of my, the number, I would just say that the number of emails that I've received over the last four years, this book is still selling really well. And it's selling really well because it, I think because it contains really useful information for people, scientific information, but information nonetheless, tools for how to have a little more control over your own experience. It's not like, you know, you just, you know, like I said in my TED talk, right? it's not like you just perform a couple of Jedi mind tricks and then you feel better, but you do have more by virtue of the fact that your brain is using past experience to make predictions about the immediate future, which becomes your present. The fact that your brain is basically every time it constructs an experience, it's making it, it's, it becomes easier for your brain to construct that experience again. So you are, in a sense, cultivating your past. Just like you can, you know, exercise, invest energy in exercising, which feels unpleasant in the moment, but, you know, is good for your heart and your lungs and so on and will give you a healthier brain. You can invest energy in attempting to learn to make new categories, which is effortful and difficult at first, but then eventually, it gets easier. And sometimes you can just slip in, slip from one to the other really, you know, without much effort at all, if you practiced enough. Now, this, of course, doesn't explain anything about specifically about emotion, which I'm happy to go into, but it does contain the groundwork, the seeds, if you will, of, of explaining how emotions are made. Mm. Yeah, I guess there's sort of two layers to this conversation. There's the, on this topic, there's the, um, what we might call the therapeutic layer, which is like what you can do to feel better or to or to be happier, given what's arising in your in your mind and body, and then there's the the layer of just um, kind of scientific ontology, like what what do we actually think is there, you know what is what is an emotion, right? And these two interact obviously, but they're they're slightly different passes over the same territory. So to take the, the first, I mean, just to kind of double down on what you just said about your daughter's experience, it seems to me that there are two interesting stages of that or, 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 or layers to that capacity for freedom there and, and the role played by concepts. So it's possible to feel lousy and to not know why, right? To have no concept that you can attach to it. And that's one state of being, and that in some ways, that's harder than most others to respond to because you're 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 burning so much fuel, or you you, know, you tend to be burning so much fuel just trying to figure out what the hell is going on, right? So like not to have a diagnosis is its own hell. But then you can get a diagnosis that you know right or wrong kind of solidifies a, a self concept that becomes its own impediment to feeling better, right? You you think of yourself as this sort of person. Uh, which is quite different than catching the flu and then feeling lousy, but you have this concept, oh, well, this is a, a transitory phenomenon. This is totally adventitious to who I am as a person. I just have the flu now, and I'm experiencing this immune response, and that's why I, I feel lousy. You know, better still, you could have just gotten the COVID vaccine and feel exactly. like you, you could feel exactly. like you have the flu, but then you've got, you know, <laughs> 
mm-hmm. people telling you in every article that you know you know yeah, that yeah. you find that uh, this is this is not only not only is this not bad this is good this is a sign yeah. that your immune system is is doing what it needs to do and that you should be happy to be feeling lousy now yeah and that has its own you know reframing effect and then there's but the, the key. Oh, yeah, yeah I just want to point out, I just want ahead. to point out this one thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's so sure. important because it just, it riffs perfectly on what you're saying, which is that these frames are not abstract things. They dictate what you do next. Yeah. A yeah. concept at its base, right? At its core is a prescription for action. So what you do when you understand your fatigue as a COVID response to uh, the, the vaccine response versus the flu versus depression what you do next is very different. And that takes you down a different trajectory of life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what you feel next is one of your doings, right? I mean, that, that's exactly. why I, I talked about exactly. emotion as covert behavior. It's just like you're feeling despair because you're this sort of person is a kind of action, even though you're just sitting you know, in your chair holding your head with both hands and don't appear to be doing much versus you feeling happy that the vaccine is apparently working. And this could be in response to the, I mean, I, I certainly don't mean to trivialize the biochemical reality of depression. I mean, so kind of bracketing depression here as, uh, as a topic. It's not really what I'm talking about. Just, but you could well imagine that given precisely the same physiological symptoms, one concept could leave you, you know, at your wit's end, you know, with despair. Another concept can leave you happy, and they could be the, precisely the same set of, of symptoms. And this connects to something else you, you cover in your book, which is this kind of programming we can do, which changes everything for us. It's not something we are left to do merely on our own. We don't have to invent this for ourselves. This is something that is being done to us all the time and to which we can more or less intelligently respond and navigate by culture right we're we're just at sea on this ocean of culture and we're you know everything is being broadcast to us by the concepts and reframings of of others and therefore it matters what we think about and who we talk to and the kinds of books we read and what and just it's just we're being lived in many respects by this this larger operating system that we're interacting with through language mostly but not you know not merely or not exclusively and it's uh culture is part of what we're talking about in terms of our um just the, the very nature of the human mind at this point i mean just this there is no boundary between the words we're using in this conversation and how they got there and how all of this gets revised day in, day out by our you know, collisions with other people face to face and our collisions with ideas in the, in the form of, you know, all the media we consume. Absolutely. I, you know, there, I'm nodding vigorously and uh, at, at every, you know, at every uh, pause you, you uh, take for a breath, I want to go, yes, and mm. listen, this is so interesting because, you know, you're absolutely right. So let me say that just a couple of things. First, you know, I love, I meant to say this the last time you used the phrase of emotion as being covert behavior. This is actually how the word emotion came to be. I can't remember which century, 16th, 17th century, but 
you know, before this, you know, philosophers would talk about passions, but emotion was really understood when passions came to be understood as covert behaviors. That was when, in part, the word emotion arose. And this, mm. the, the history of this is actually, you can find it in um, this really great book by Kurt Denzinger called The Naming of the Mind, where he traces the history of our current ontology in, in psychology. It's just a brilliant, mm. wonderful read. And I would say that, you know, brains wire themselves to their world, you know, through their sensory surfaces. So part of that world is, is physical, you know, light strikes your retina and makes its way to your brain. And part of that world is social, meaning we talk to each other, we hug each other, we, you know, and this is very we make eye contact with each other. Uh, that one way, you know, we regulate each other's attention is by uh, gaze. And mm. we, I think, underestimate the, the extent to which that, you know, human brains are born under construction and really require input from the world, including the social world, you know, in the form of actions and so on, that is necessary, necessary to wire the brain to become a neurotypical human brain. So culture, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm amused, you know, when people start talking about, you know, nature versus nurture and, you know, the, you know, relevance of, of culture as sort of an overlay or a moderator on, you know, genes or what have you. This is just a really, again, it's a mistaken understanding of, of how, things work, you know, this idea that there are simple single causes that work in some mechanistic way. And that's really not how it works at all. There's really a synergy of causes that lead to your brain being wired in a particular way and making, you know, the cascade of predictions in a moment to moment way that it does. And, you know, when you're young, you don't have much choice over what you're exposed to, what world is cultivated for you, and therefore what concepts are wired into your brain. But when you're older, not everybody has complete choice or control. Some people have more control over their lives than other people do by virtue of circumstance. Everybody probably wants more control than they actually have, but we all have some control to actually cultivate you know, cultivate the environments that we're in. This is called niche construction. All animals do it. Humans do it too. We do it without really thinking about it, but we do it. And therefore, we actually are not only have some, we all not only have more freedom to construct our experience in a particular way, we also have a little more control over the environments that provoke the sense data that are the reasons for categorizing in the first place. What I mean by that is, you know, like all animals, we contribute to add to shape the environments that we're in and that give us the sense data that we then have to deal with. And it's really important to understand that, you know, what you do, how you act, what you say, what you don't say, is as important to shaping what you will experience in the next moment as the concepts that have been wired into your brain by culture. So, I mean, you know, 
we can use the example of depression. And again, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not saying that people can just, you know, talk themselves out of depression. Depression is, I think, a, you know, right now it, it's a, it's not just an, an epidemic, you know, in the United States, it's, it's actually, I think the World Health Organization has now put it ahead of heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease as, um, you know, uh, a worldwide, you know, killer, mm. basically. And it's a metabolic illness. It's a metabolic illness that also implicates your immune system. And, you know, so understanding it as a mood disorder is um, probably uh, an incomplete kind of understanding. So I'm not saying that you can just snap your fingers and, you know, work a bit of magic and then you'll feel better. But I, I do, there are actually things that you can do even when you're depressed that can ease your suffering some. And part of it comes from understanding and therefore giving yourself the tools to conceptualize or reframe or understand your you know suffering differently and it it does help some and but more importantly i would say it it actually helps you if you're struggling it helps you prevent getting to the point of being depressed so for example you know when i wake up in the morning and i am already exhausted and I haven't even dragged my ass out of bed yet. And I'm, you know, my mind is racing to think about all the things I have to do in the day and so on. It's very easy for me to construct an experience of anxiety or, or dread or, or I could just construct an experience of a physical state like, okay, I'm, you know, I don't have a lot of spoons today, as my daughter would say. You know, there's a whole story here about metabolic regulation that we haven't really talked about yet that, you know, I do mention in Seven and a Half Lessons, and it's also in the, in the other book as well, that is very related to your mood. And, and in my universe, you know, mood and emotion are not the same thing. Right. What I will say is that emotions are constructed in exactly the same way as every other experience that you have is constructed exactly the same way your brain is you know running anticipatorily predictively running a model of its body in the world it's conjuring concepts or categories i would call them conceptual categories as a way of you know preparing for action and constructing experience in advance and when you use experiences of emotion from the past when your brain is using those experiences to construct the present state that's when you're constructing emotion. There's really nothing different about it, except the features that your brain is, is computing, the mental features that your brain is always computing. Some of them will be more intense than at other times, like, mm. you know, mood, for example. And we can talk about where mood comes from, but mood is not unique to emotion. It's with you all the time. It's only when it's particularly intensely pleasant or unpleasant that, you know, in this culture that we tend to conjure emo conjure an emotion out of it. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to pick up on one thing you you said, and it actually connects to something I think I neglected to say when I was talking about the different layers of a therapeutic response to one's um, sensory experience. So there's this sort of the conceptual layer. It just it just matter it matters how we categorize things, and that that makes us feel or think we should act and feel in certain ways. But there's this other possibility which connects to a concept I, I know you know, I don't know how 
deep your experience is with it, but this notion of mindfulness and, and, and how we can respond by merely recognizing the, the physiology as physiology or you know, the, the sensations as sensations in, as, in a way that is as unencumbered by concepts as is possible. I, just how unencumbered it may be a topic of debate, but just to give you a concrete example, so I, you know, let's say you're feeling anxious before having to give a public talk right now this can be completely destabilizing for for certain people and you know to actually prevent the whole enterprise or it can be something that people learn how to work with and it can become tolerable and better yet it can become something that they reframe in a way where they feel like okay well this this energy i feel in my body is you know i've been calling it anxiety my whole life but it's actually almost indistinguishable from what I've been calling excitement, right? And so it's, it's, it's energy I can use. And I would be worried if I didn't feel something like this. I mean, I'm, I'm about to step on stage in front of 2,000 people. I don't want to fall asleep. I want to be thinking quickly. And this is just fuel, right? So you can reframe it as, as something positive. And so that's the sort of a conceptual response that allows for a very different way of being on, on the back of that cortisol-laden initial experience. But one could also, you know, and these aren't mutually exclusive, one could also just decide to recognize the, the feeling as mere sensation that doesn't have any intrinsic meaning. You know, it doesn't have any meaning for you as a person, and it need not have any meaning for your subsequent moments of behavior. And it becomes analogous to something like indigestion or a pain in your knee or, you know, itching, you know, born of, you know, having had a, gotten a mosquito bite or something like it doesn't, doesn't get mapped back onto who you are in any way that, that is psychologically or, or philosophically relevant, right? And it's just mere appearance. And there's a freedom in recognizing it on that level as well. Um, so I just wanted to, I, I wanted to, close the loop on that and, and feel free to react, but perhaps we should clarify the difference in this context between mood and emotion that you just brought up, because I do, I, emotions really do admit of interruption, you know, very directly by changing one's concepts or, or changing one's, the, the way in which one attends to them, and moods are, are kind of far more global thing happening that, uh, again, I'm, I, I, w I wouldn't say we have no freedom with respect to how we um, respond to them. I mean, they, they, are, they are malleable, but they're, they are different. So I, I'm just interested to know how you think about that. Yeah, there's a lot of ways into this. So, I mean, I agree with everything that you said, and there are a lot of ways into this. There, there are a lot of ways into the science behind what you just said. So let me just start with an example. When my daughter was 12 years old, she was a tiny little thing, barely five feet tall. And uh, she was testing for her black belt in karate. And she was testing with these hulking, you know, adolescent boys. That was the only way I could put it. Mm. And her, her sensei, who is a 10th degree black belt, so a pretty strong and scary looking guy in his own right, marches up to my daughter and says to her, get your butterflies flying in formation. <laughs> mm. And I thought, Oh my God, you're brilliant. Because 
energy, arousal, determination, anxiety. You know, she cortisol is not a stress hormone. Cortisol is a hormone that's released in, you know, into your bloodstream when your brain believes that you have a big metabolic outlay that is about to happen. So that is actually what stress is. Stress is just a big metabolic outlay that your brain is preparing you for big metabolic outlay. It can be good stress or bad stress, depending on, you know, uh, what the metabolic outlay is for and whether or not you repay what you've spent, but, you know, the, the resources that you've spent. But basically he was telling her to reframe her, you know, jittery arousal, her jittery arousal to be um, energy and determination instead of anxiety. And in fact, there's an entire program of treatment designed to help people, for example, who have test anxiety in exactly this way. So here's what I'll say. Your brain is constantly attempting to regulate your body and your body is sending information back to your brain about the sensory state of the body. And you and I are not wired to experience every little sensation that we every little sense, sensory change in the body, what evolution has fashioned us with is a vague sense of what's going on in our body, plus feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling worked up, feeling calm, feeling you know comfortable, uncomfortable. This is basically like a barometer of you know, whether things are, are copacetic or kind of problematic in the body. And scientists call this affect with an A, and the average person would call it mood. So your brain is always regulating your body and your body's always sending sense data back to your brain. So you're always, you all, your brain is always computing affective features of experience. They're properties of consciousness. They're always with you all the time. Sometimes they're in the foreground, sometimes they're in the background, but they're always there. You sometimes, however, will make an emotion. So that's important to understand. Sometimes you don't want to make an emotion. Sometimes you want to try to experience you, know, you would say to um, experience the sensations directly unencumbered by concepts. I would say, you know, when we can't construct a concept to categorize sense data, we are experientially blind. That's, that's what philosophers call it, right? Experiential blindness. And really mindfulness meditation is designed to try to, I mean, in its essence, right? It's tried you know, trying to cultivate experiential blindness in us, that that's what we're trying to do, to experience sensations directly without being encumbered by the concepts that we use to make sense of them. But the truth is that we really can't do that. But what we can do is categorize in more kind of granular ways so that we can get closer to experiential blindness. And the example that I often use is, you know, when you, when you learn to paint uh, render a, a three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional canvas. If you just look at the object in three dimensions and try to draw it on or paint it on the two-dimensional canvas, you'll end up with a really crappy looking, you know, object. But if you instead try to recategorize the object as little pieces of light, take it apart and, and, and categorize it in this really granular way and as little pieces of light, then when you paint the little pieces of light, on the canvas, one at a time, you end up getting a pretty decent looking three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional canvas, unless you're me, mm. and then, you know, all bets are off because I can't paint. But the point is that you can recategorize 
in a way to remove some of the conceptual content. It's like that is that you're going to not compute certain certain mental features and and really um, try to get closer to the sensations. Another meaning of mindfulness, though, is to pay attention to features of experience that are normally outside of your awareness. So for example, you know, the sensations of the back of the chair pressing up against your back or the bottom of your chair pressing up against your legs or the sound of the air conditioner or the heater that you weren't paying attention to a moment ago. This version of mindfulness is less contemplative but also useful because one of the things that drives your predictions, drives your conceptualization is the whatever your brain is modeling at the moment, right? So whatever is in whatever your brain is modeling at the moment is partly what will determine what predictions your brain conjures next. And by shifting your attention from certain features of experience to other features of experience, you're essentially changing your environment without moving. And that also can change the cascade of predictions that your brain hmm. will then um, find itself on. So there are many little nudges that you know that you can learn to do to to have more control over how your brain is making sense of the sensory environment that is your world. Hmm. Well, so to bring this back to the, the question of scientific ontology and just what is an emotion i guess i my question is how far would you take this this kind of constructivist picture of what emotions are so it takes take what is often considered a primary emotion which transcends culture and is found in you know all people everywhere something like disgust right now it's obviously it can get mediated by culture because you know some if you tell me that someone ate a dog for lunch, I will find that disgusting, but not all humans in all times and places would. So it's we know that the concepts to which disgust can attach can change. You know, we can probably we can change them deliberately. You can become a vegetarian and find all meat disgusting and yet you can remember what it was like to happily eat hamburgers, etc. But what would you say to the claim that Disgust is, you know, however you decide to think about it, disgust is a kind of brute fact of, at minimum, human evolution. It's hardwired into us on some level. Uh, really? Pro really? Where's, by... the, where's the evidence of that? I, I completely disagree. Yeah, so, so, what, so mean, just, you, just tell me, so tell me where yet. you get it. Tell me precisely where you get off that particular ride. Yeah, so let me say that there are certain actions. So you you made this really beautiful statement, which I think is very, very true, and that sensation has no intrinsic meaning. And that's exactly right. And actions also have no intrinsic meaning. So one thing you would say is that no sensation, no action has intrinsic meaning, or I would say this. In fact, I have said this. Uh, no intrinsic meaning as emotional. Somebody has to make it emotional by understanding it in a particular mm. way, by categorizing it in a particular way. What is universal in humans is nausea and vomiting. <laughs> right? Just like freezing is also universal in humans and shared with other animals, as is running, mm. as is fainting. And humans have this amazing conceptual capacity to 
find similarities in things that are perceptually and motorically different. So trying to eject something from your body or prevent it from being in your body is a functional description. And you can do lots of things. There are lots of actions you can take that will do that. And so what a human can do is look at various things and say, well, that's discussed, that's discussed, that's discussed, that's discussed. But they could have different, you know, neural circuitry that supports it. They can, they can be involving different sensations and different motoric patterns. And yet for us, they're all discussed. And so then I would ask the question, well, where then does disgust live? Does it live in the event or does it live in the perceiver? This is not an ontological trick and it's not postmodernist bullshit. I would suggest that, you know, anyone who really has trouble with this idea should read quantum mechanics. Objects don't have intrinsic features. They only have features in relation to one another. Properties don't exist in an abstract universal sense. They only exist in relation to one another. And what I would say is, so when I look at a rat who's freezing and I say, that rat is afraid or that rat is threatened. And my colleague, you know, looks at the rat who's freezing and, and, you know, he says, oh, that rat is afraid. So we're both categorizing the actions of that animal as being afraid or as being threatened. Whose brain is computing the property of threat and fear? Is the animal's brain computing that property? Can the animal actually, does the brain, the animal's brain actually have the capacity to compute that property? I would say, well, it depends on the animal, but for a rat, probably not. So the rat's brain doesn't have to compute the property of threat or fear in order to, you know, make a prediction and respond to a particular situation that another animal like a human could look at and and understand very differently because our ability to make concepts abstract concepts to find similarities where there are no concrete physical similarities really outstrips any other animal on this planet so i guess i guess what i would say sam is that i mean our lab has been to two you know cultures that are you know, small scale and somewhat remote from Western civilization. And we don't see anything that looks like disgust. We certainly, they don't necessarily have a concept for disgust, but they certainly... Do, do they have a concept for things they wouldn't eat? For sure. But, 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 that, that, I, but the, point, how, well, the point that I'm, well, the point that I'm yeah. trying to make is that you're, there's, an inferent, there's a huge inferential leap that we're making there. So that there are many things that I wouldn't eat that I wouldn't call disgusting, but I wouldn't eat them. And right. there are times when I throw up, when I'm not feeling disgusted, but I throw up nonetheless. So my point is that when someone says disgust is universal, that has a particular mean. I mean, there, there's, that's really a different kind of ontological claim mm. than saying there are things in the, you know, ev there are some things that, you know, it might not be the same thing for everyone, but, but every human has some things they won't eat that they find distasteful and that might make them nauseated. And, you know, right. every, every so-called universal, you know, um, indicator of disgust has not been shown to be universal. You know, like the classic sort of the stereotype of a disgust expression in a Western person you can see babies make this expression and then grab the hand of the person who's feeding them and pull the spoon towards their mouth. You know, like mm. I just, 
I think we just have to be really careful, really, really careful as scientists. When we're making claims about ontology, we have to be super careful about what we infer versus what we observe. Right. But so just to pin this down, and then I promise I'll let you go. I see that I've taken you past your, your heart out. But um, Well, I, I took myself past it, probably. Yeah, well, so, that, this yeah. Is, I, I, got you, I got you on one of your hobby horses, clearly, and, and, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, you, I promise I'll get you indeed. off. Yeah. But so what would you predict if, if my hypothesis were, and I, and I guess I'll just put this hat on, I, I, think, I think I would probably bet that this is the case, that, that this stands a good chance of being a human universal. If you could get a statistically valid sample of every human population and find out what foods they would never want to eat for reasons of, uh, that, that seem to be distaste and, and the kind of you know, social taboos around eating those foods. You know, if you put them in an experiment and say, you, know, you, you give them something tasty to eat, and then you tell them, actually, uh, you, we, we gave you the wrong food here. This casserole had dog in it, or you, you, would, you would put the taboo food in as needed for the experiment. You know, and then you scan the brains of these people. What you, you might find is a universal pattern, which is the concept that they had just eaten this revolting food would be predictably linked with nausea or, you know, its precursors. I would have to guess uh, insula activity. Uh, there'd be some pattern that we could extrapolate, you know, some, the concept of disgust could be filled in with this, this pattern that we would, you know, triangulate on based on the behavior and the, the functional neuroanatomy. Would you be surprised if we found that whole complex to be a human universal, or would you be surprised to, to uh, not find it? I guess what I would say is this. I, in the end, um, I, am, uh, I will always capitulate to well-collected and replicated data. So I would be surprised to find a universal single pattern for any category or concept, because as far as I know, concepts are, are highly situated populations of patterns. So there isn't a single pattern for anger or sadness or fear or disgust. As far as I know, there are populations of patterns that what, you know, just in the sense that, you know, like in anger, what you do in anger, whether your heart rate goes up or down, whether you scowl or you smile or you cry, whether you approach or withdraw, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, these features differ depending on the situation. And therefore the pattern in the brain will differ depending on the context in which it's occurring. Mm. And so for disgust, I would imagine something similar. I know for a fact that there are at least two or three patterns for disgust that have been documented, but you know, I haven't, I'm a little far away from now every paper that's ever been published. At one point, I could claim that I had read every paper that had been published um, on brain imaging paper on emotion. I'm, I'm a little far away from that at the moment. But as far as I know, there's no single pattern for any emotion category or concept. And that's because they're conjured in the moment in a particular situation for a particular action. And I'm not, these aren't weasel words. Probability isn't weasel words. Population mm -hmm. thinking as Darwin conceived it, which is what I'm talking about here, it aren't weasel words. You know, this is really how your brain works. So sometimes when you're disgusted, you are, uh, 
you know, um, nauseated. And sometimes you're exuberant. When my daughter was young, I threw a disgust party for her. And I had, you know, a bunch of kids in the throes of exuberant disgust, exuberant disgust, where they would squeal and, you know, make, you know, um, noises and, and then willingly and happily put disgusting foods in their mouth that, you know, would, that they would gag and then they would laugh. <laughs> so, I mean, it's actually in how emotions are made. So if you mm. ever, if anybody ever wants to throw like a really fun birthday party for their kid, there's a whole, there's a whole script in there for what you should do. And, and please email me and I'll tell you all the really fun things that we did to make kids gag and, mm. you know, and then laugh themselves sick at the whole, at the whole experience. So my, my point is that disgust is not one thing with one set of features and one neural pattern. It's a, it's a population of patterns and a population of features. So is it the case that sometimes in disgust, we vomit or feel nauseated? For sure. Is that true? Is, is disgust the way that everyone in the world at some point makes sense of nausea or vomiting? That I can't answer, but I'd be really surprised if the answer was yes, because there are other physical symptoms and actions that people make sense of in other cultures that are really different from ours, like so different that it seems bizarre and foreign, like falling asleep in fear or take, becoming nostalgic and ill and dying at the loss of a loved one. Right. In in our own culture, in a different century, nostalgia was an emotion, a syndrome that killed you. Mm. So I think, again, I would say I'm not saying that these that your question is not pointing to something important. I just think as scientists, we have to be really careful when we're talking about ontology and what's universal. We have to be really with those two things don't mean the same thing. But, but, you know, when we're talking about ontology and we want to claim something about a universal ontology, we have to be super careful that we are not embedding implicit abstractions that we make because we learn to make them and attributing them to everybody else in the world. Yeah, fascinating. All right, I'm going to call this podcast Nostalgia Kills and uh, see what we get. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, thank you for your time. It's uh, it's wonderful to talk to you. I hope we meet in person one day. And um, congratulations on the book. I uh, once again, it's seven and a half lessons about the brain. And um, yeah, uh, I'll see you on the other side of uh, this pandemic. Well, I yeah, I have had a wonderful time, and uh, this has been a fantastically fun conversation. And I will definitely look forward to uh, to having coffee or something on the other side. Nice.